The scripture reading for today is going to be out of 1 John 2, 18 through 29. So if you're wanting to use the Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 862. If you prefer, we also have the words back up behind us on the screen. So 1 John 2, 18 through 29. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. For this we know, that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they were not all of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. For I have written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If you heard from the beginning, I'm sorry, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. May God bless the reading of his word. Does anybody know what it is? Okay, can you tell me what it is? You have, what? It's the real thing. Now, did you cheat and see that there? Preston wins the prize for today. There you go. Don't spend it all in one place. (laughs) All right. Now, (laughs) most of us in this room, excuse me, most of you in this room are too young to know that song. There's only a few of us who aren't able to go to Thrive that actually remember that song, okay? Uh, Yes, see, but there are bonuses for us old folks. We get things like like that. All right, so It's the Real Thing was a commercial campaign for Coca-Cola years ago, and and it became huge. It was actually a transformational campaign, ad campaign. They They had an orchestra. The song itself actually reached number seven on the charts, okay? And it wasn't, so it wasn't just a jingle. That's what it was supposed to be. And what happened was an advertising executive named Bill Barker was trying to come up with a way to reintroduce Coca-Cola, which had been around forever, because it was beginning to lose market share to Pepsi and to RC. And here, where you couldn't buy it because it was illegal, it was losing market share, of course, to the great Coca-Cola. Yeah, yeah. Yay, all right, there we go. But here's the thing. He, had, he was sitting in an airport, this advertising executive, and, he, and the plane was delayed. And so he kept seeing people talk to one another. You know, they were getting frustrated. They were sharing this difficulty with one another. And he kept hearing them say, because this is what he was tuned into, hey, let's go get a Coke. And they bonded over a Coca-Cola while they're waiting on a delay for their flight. And so he takes the idea of, well, we're going to do this this commercial campaign, and we're going to promote Coke as the real thing, and we're going to promote it as something that brings people together. And so he went to his songwriters, and and he he pitches the idea of of everybody singing together, I want to buy the world a Coke. Isn't that touching? Yeah, doesn't it just get you right here? And the, and the songwriter goes, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. He says, I don't want to buy the world a Coke. And, and this is coming out of the 70s. There was a lot of turmoil. And he says, I want to buy 
I want to buy the world a home. I want people to, to have peace. I want them to have harmony inside. And so the songwriter fought with the advertising agent, agent and said, if I'm going to write this, then we're going to at least start off with, with my part, and then we'll go and make it something that shamelessly promotes a product. So here's the commercial, and I want you to see it because it actually was a very transformational. It is the first multicultural commercial that ever aired. There it is. First John. Don't you all just feel good inside now? All right. It's what the world wants today. Did you, did you know that? That's what they were trying to say. The aspirations, the desire behind that song was reaching for something far greater than any kind of product in this world could ever fulfill. The desire behind it, the desire of what the world is really looking for is the real thing, Jesus Christ. You see, even the advertising agent and the songwriter knew that there was something missing deep inside of every person from every nation and tongue on the face of the earth. And it could never be filled with materialism, with things. It needed something deeper. It needed the real thing, Jesus. As we come to this part of 1 John, what he's wanting to do is he's wanting you to know you have, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you have the real thing, the greatest thing. He wants you to be absolutely secure in your understanding that you not only have life because of faith in Jesus Christ, you are a new person, a new identity. The scars that marked your old life and your old identity, the things that had been done to you, the failures that you yourself had made, that is not who you are. In Jesus Christ, you are something absolutely brand new and transformed. You are becoming the real you in Jesus Christ. John wants us to have confidence as believers. He wants us to see ourselves as children of God who can live boldly by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the, the teaching of God's word and accomplish all that God calls us to do. And so what John does in his letter is he takes up this theme of the real thing and he wants to assure his audience and he wants to assure us. Here's what he says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And now little children... Abide in him, in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. What he's saying is, I want you to have absolute confidence that if Jesus came back right in the very next moment, that you would not be fearful you would be filled instead with joy and awe and wonder because you're safe and secure in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's writing to build up the confidence of the church. And so as we look at this passage today, what I pray the Lord will do is strengthen your faith, strengthen your confidence, not in yourself, but in the God who loves you so very much, he was willing to give all that he is for you, Jesus Christ. 
So how can we have absolute confidence that when Jesus appears as judge of all of the earth, of the living and the dead, that we will have no shame and we can know and live as adopted sons and daughters of God? Well, in this letter, John gives three tests to build our confidence and to help us examine our own hearts to see if our faith is the real thing. See, that's where he's going. He wants you and I to know that we have real faith. And so he gives three tests here in the letter to help us, first of all, examine our hearts to see if it's real, and then as we see it's real, to take great confidence. The first one is the discipleship test. This is where he began back in chapter one, where he talked about walking in the light. And basically, the test simply asked this question. Do you look more like Jesus Christ today than you did a month ago, a year ago, five years ago? Is he changing your character, your outlook? If so, you want to take confidence and you want to to remember that God is working, that the Holy Spirit is working, and you want to say, Lord, do even more. I want you, as we sang, I want to meet with you here again because I want you, I want all of you. God, I want more of you. That's a discipleship test. Am I becoming more like Jesus Christ? Secondly is the love test, and this is all through the letter. But are we loving one another sacrificially like Jesus? Does our love look like him? Where we're willing to sacrifice ourselves, to empathize with others, to rest in Jesus, to value other people as God's masterpiece, to expect hardship, and to share in Jesus' suffering because that's what love really looks like. We already looked at that. Well, thirdly, here in this part of the passage, he's giving us the truth test because what we believe matters. It's incredibly important. Are we living the truth of Jesus? And here's an important distinction I want you to hold on to. What we think or what we say we believe only has meaning if we live it. If I live in a way different from what I confess with my mouth that I believe, then in truth, I don't really believe it. It is only the truth that we live that's the real thing. So here's here's where he's going in this passage. He wants us to examine our faith, examine our belief, and examine what is absolutely most important. And here's how I would put it. Right doctrine is incredibly important, but it is not enough. Doctrine that is not empowered into life by the Holy Spirit is just empty words. It needs to be real, to take root within us. And so, in essence, what John's getting ready to do here in this passage is he's giving us a taste test. Now, originally, I thought, well, I could just do a taste test, a blind taste test, see if you could tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi and Cafola. Um, I think everybody could tell the difference between Cafola and Coke, but Pepsi and Coke, there would be fewer of them. But, you know, that wasn't really, that's not that challenging. So my wife came up with a, a better idea. Um, I went to my research team, and as, as always, she came through. And, and Becky is, is a wonderful baker, and she makes incredible chocolate chip cookies. They are delicious. So uh, I think, we, in fact, we, we sent some to, to youth, pro- you, you wanna trade the 200 crowns? Uh, well, come on down, come on down. That, you know what, I was about to ask for a volunteer and Preston did it. All right, Preston, come on down. All right. Oh, well, it's going to take more than that because you're going to regret what you just chose to do. But that's okay. What, what we have here is, now, now this again is I'm giving all credit to my amazing, amazing bride. So, you know, she's, she said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do a taste test, but we're looking for the real thing, right? And the real thing means that the ingredients that are inside are authentic, that they're what they're supposed to be. Because if one particular ingredient is missing, then it might change whether or not it really is a chocolate chip cookie, right? So I have here two different options of chocolate chip cookies. And, and 
Preston, I would like you to, actually, I'm going to, I'll let you pick one first. Which one would you like? Do you try left, right? What do you want to try? Excellent choice. Excellent choice. All right. Now, um, I want you to, you know, there isn't very often that I would actually ask for the camera, but if you have a camera to be on Preston, just to see how much he enjoys this particular cookie, it probably would be a good, turn around, turn around, you want to show everyone, and I want you to go ahead and take the taste test and let us know what you think of that cookie. I'm so impressed. I didn't make it that far with my version of that cookie. Knowing that Becky makes it, it's, it's sweet. It, no, it is not sweet, but unless you got, is it a good one? Um, <laughs> Let me just. It is, it is a bit salty. <laughs> a, bit, a bit salty. You can put the rest of it in there. No offense, Becky. That's right. All right, you can, you can try this one. It's, it's yeah. the real thing. Right, thank you. All right. So. So, yeah, and by the way, yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> um, thank you, Preston. All we did was change out an ingredient that looks very similar. I mean, when you see it in granule form, sugar and salt look almost the same. But they are radically different. And in truth, you just can't have a chocolate chip cookie without sugar especially if the sugar has been replaced by salt. Um, I was actually expecting a little, little more, because I didn't make it that far. I was just, it was gone. <laughs> I couldn't take it, of course, maybe because I knew what was coming. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's good. Well, what John wants to do is give us a taste test for truth to see if it's the real thing. These next verses, as we, as we look at it, is, is looking at the central ingredient of our faith. That if this understanding, if this belief is not right, then our faith, no matter what we might believe about some doctrinal things, some positions that we might have, none of it matters if this ingredient is off. Everything is secondary if we do not have a right belief about the person of Jesus Christ. That's the focus of his verses. Verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Now, as John is writing, it's evident that there had been a, a split somewhere within the church, that a group had left and had been teaching something that was, that was different specifically about who Jesus is. And when we look back in history, we can, we can trace some of, of what had occurred um, there in the, in the first century and then later in the second century where false teaching was beginning to come and threaten the church. But John zeroes in, first of all, on this title, Antichrist. And, and the word Antichrist, if you've been in church for very long, you've probably heard it, but understand it is a word that actually only appears in John's writings. Now, the person that it refers to um, appears in many different places within the scripture, but the title is one that John chose. And Antichrist means against Christ, against Jesus, against the anointed one. And so he says, first of all, he's telling us about and reminding the church about the person of Antichrist. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. And he's using a title for a specific person that scripture and prophecy reveals who will come and be against Christ. Um, and, and we see that in many places in the scripture. We see it in Daniel chapters 7 through 11. We see it in 2 Thessalonians. We see it in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark 13, as well as here in First and Second John, and especially in the book of Revelation. 
It talks about the person of Antichrist. And, and you'll notice, though, that he, he also says that, that there's already many Antichrists who have come. In Daniel, there's, there's a passage of Scripture that is a vision and a prophecy given to Daniel in Daniel 7 through 11 that details what would happen and what would unfold in the history of the world with incredible detail. If you truly doubt whether or not God's word is authentic, that it is real, then that is a place to study and explore because God, through the vision that he gives to Daniel, predicts that the Medo-Persian Empire um, that would rise up and take over Babylon. He predicts the rise of Alexander the Great. He predicts then that his sons would take over and the empire would be divided. And then he predicts further that a, an individual by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes would be a type of Antichrist. And Antiochus gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He chose that title as a ruler um, in about 160 AD, or excuse me, BC, he gave himself that title saying, I am God in the flesh. And he went into the temple in Jerusalem and he sacrificed um, pigs there in the temple, which was totally against God's word. He set up an idol, uh, idolatry in the temple, and he defamed it. And the, the scripture refers to it as the abomination of desolation. It was defiling everything that God had commanded to his people. And he rightly predicted it. Jesus came along and said, yes, that, is, that has happened, but there is another Antichrist coming in the future. And there's also another destruction coming. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus also gives prophecy about the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem that occurred in 70 AD, but also writes prophecy and points us to the person of Antichrist that will be the ultimate one who opposes Jesus. God gives us those elements of his word to give us confidence that he is unfilling his, unfilling, fulfilling his plan. He is bringing it all about. He's unveiling his will and his work for us. And so John is reminding them that there's an antichrist coming, a person specific who is coming that prophecy is spoken of and that John will write on much more, especially in the book of Revelation. But he also says that not only is there a person of Antichrist, but there is a spirit uh, that is against Christ. John is telling the church that the spirit of Antichrist is already there. The deity of Jesus Christ as God's only begotten son was being attacked. And he warns the church that it will be a growing concern that they need to watch for. And beginning at the end of John's ministry, a, a teaching began to rise up called Gnosticism. And the word Gnosticism or Gnostic simply means a secret knowledge. And it was a teaching that, that you had to have these certain hidden things in order to really have uh, a, a spiritual life. But a part of what Gnosticism said was that Jesus wasn't really who he said he was. That he either wasn't truly in the flesh and he wasn't God in the flesh. Maybe it was this spirit that came upon a, a, a normal person whose name was Jesus. And, and there at his baptism, that spirit merged with that person. But he wasn't God in the flesh. It was a false teaching that was rising up. And we see that throughout history. In many of the cults that still are in existence today, things like Christian science or Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a very similar belief about Jesus, that he is not fully God and fully man. He is not truly the only mediator between God and man. And so this reality that he is warning us about has occurred in history. What is more, he's saying it had occurred in their church. That there was a split over doctrine that was absolutely essential that revealed itself in people leaving the church and going and likely starting something else, their own belief system. 
Those who were against Christ revealed their true identity, he says, first of all, by breaking fellowship. God has called us a body on purpose. A body that is split in two will not survive. God calls us to stay in fellowship with one another because we're united together. And the greatest testimony that we truly are, the followers of Jesus Christ, is our love for one another. The desire of that commercial, seeing the world in harmony, that's the true desire and what God is actually accomplishing in and through his church. He's bringing people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and making them one in Jesus Christ. That proclaims his greatness. That's why it is so important for us as a church to, to, to stand together in fellowship, to love one another, to um, give grace to one another. We come from different understandings, different backgrounds, but when we're united in Christ, we are one. And we should celebrate one another. Well, in this particular group, what was happening in, in John's church that he's writing to, there was a faction that had split off. And, and it was in um, disobedience to God's word. And that was the first evidence that there was something really, really wrong with what was being taught and what was believed. Hebrews 10 puts it this way in verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews is, is telling us the worse things get in our world, the more we need to come together. When we see... <laughs> strife and difficulty and wars and, and, and political division, that is the time for the people of God to stand even more closely and to, together and to stir one another up to love and good works. That's the action we can take. You know, sometimes when the circumstances are around us and the, the things that we hear in the news, when it becomes overwhelming and we feel powerless, what God's word is telling us is that's the time for us to come together in prayer and to encourage one another to be the hands and feet of Jesus. But those against Christ revealed their identity by breaking fellowship. Secondly, he states that they not only leave fellowship, but they deny truth. Look what he says in the next verses. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all Excuse me, excuse me, you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The identity and person and our belief about Jesus Christ is the most essential truth of Christianity. If we believe that Jesus is anything less than God in the flesh, fully God and fully human, we are not Christians. That is simply the truth that he's proclaiming. If we believe he's a good teacher, that we should follow some of the things that he says, um, or he's an example, those do not meet the measure of faith and of truth. And what was happening there in the first century is there were people who were denying that Jesus was the Christ. Now the word Christ, there's an interesting play on words that John uses there because he says that he talks about us being anointed by the Holy One. And then our belief is in the Christ. The word Christ is a Greek word for uh, the Hebrew term Messiah, and it simply means the anointed one. In the scripture, when something is anointed, it, it refers to it being set apart as holy for God's purpose. And what they would do, whether it was an instrument for worship within the temple or for a priest or for a king, 
is that they would anoint the person or that instrument with oil, recognizing the, the presence of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And what he's doing here is he's saying the anointed one, the only Messiah, Jesus, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, he is the one that we believe in. And when we believe in him, he pours out just as you would pour out oil on the head of a priest or of a king to anoint them. He pours out his Holy Spirit on every believer to live within us. That's the picture he's talking about here, that The evidence that we have is the truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit living within us. But those who are against Christ deny the historical and biblical truth. And John had appealed to them to remember what they had been taught from the very beginning. Remember how his his letter begins in chapter one? John testifies of things which he had seen, which he had heard, which he had handled concerning the word of life, Jesus Christ. He's saying, look at the evidence. Make sure that what you believe aligns with the evidence that's presented in God's word because that is the taste test of real faith. And so they not only denied the historical truth of who Jesus is, they denied the divinity of Jesus, saying that he was something less than God in the flesh. And beginning... Shortly after this, in the early uh, 300s, there arose a teaching by uh, a man named Arius who um, was teaching that Jesus, again, was not fully God. That there was something less than that. That Maybe he was an angel, maybe he was a spirit, but he wasn't fully God. And um, a great... um, pastor and leader in the church, Athanasius, rose up and he would debate against the teachings of Arius. And and what happened was there in the early church is they took those core beliefs that they had had from the very beginning, the things that John is referring to that were the rule of faith, and they began to put them together in, in what we know today as the Apostles' Creed. The reason they did that is unlike us today where we have access to God's word on our phones and and you can can get a printed copy, uh, the people in the early church didn't have the the benefit uh, of the printing press where they could examine God's word in in its uh, completeness at any time they wanted. And so they wanted to make sure that we were rightly aligning to the rule of faith And that that rule of faith was not so much about doctrinal truths, but about God's action in history. What he had done in and through and would do through the person of Jesus Christ. Everything about what we call the Apostles' Creed is ultimately about Jesus. And later there were other teachings that were were coming up and so they they adapted it a little bit more and they came up with the Nicene Creed that addressed a few other of the misconceptions of of what truth was but the Apostles Creed is one that dates back tradition says that it dates back there are 12 statements within the Apostles Creed and that one was given by each of the Apostles I don't know whether that's true or not, but it certainly is absolutely consistent with everything that you see in the scripture. In a moment, we're gonna look at that uh, and, and we're gonna say it together and then we're gonna sing it. It's gonna, be, it's gonna be awesome. What John is wanting us to do is he's wanting us to see and have a confident faith based upon absolute assurance of who Jesus is. And so that's what he says in verses 24 and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. What he's saying is the way to make your faith absolutely secure is to let God's word live inside of you. This is why frequently I tell you to immerse yourself in God's word. We have been given the greatest treasure of all the ages in the Bible. It is God speaking to us. And and what we need to do when it says abide in us, that means that his word literally is living inside of you and me. 
And the only way that happens is if I'm reading it, if I'm meditating on it, if I'm looking at it and saying, Lord, I want to know what that means. I want to understand that and I want to live it. So the way to have absolute confident faith is first of all, for us to have his word living inside of us. Now that means that we need some discipline. We need to choose to be regular about being in God's word. And the first step to having an authentic, real faith and having it grow is for you to be spending time in God's word every day. You know, the great thing about having it on your phone is you can, you can look at it. You can, I mean, it is so convenient. When you get on the, the tram or on the metro, you can open it up and you can meditate on, on a few verses now, that's, that's a good thing to do. I encourage you to also be disciplined enough to have a set time during the day where you're looking into God's word and, and it's just you and God meeting together, exploring his word. Allow it to live in you. And then secondly, he not only says that God's word is to live in us, but we are to live in Christ. We're to abide in Jesus Christ. That's what, he, what he's, he's telling us. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide, live in the Son and in the Father. What he's saying is, not only do you need God's word living in you, you need to live in the union you've been given, the new identity you've been given in the love relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit because that's what you're invited into. That's where your life needs to be. Colossians says, Christ who is our life. When we begin to understand that Jesus loves us so much and offers us a fullness of life that we take our identity, our will, our direction, our purpose, everything about our life, not from ourselves, but we transfer it to him and give him ownership of it, Eternal life becomes a now thing, not a future thing. That's the promise of his word. We are to live in Jesus and in the Father. And it's beautiful that he's inviting in this, into this incredible love relationship. And then the third element is the Holy Spirit. I write these things to you uh, about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him, which is Jesus, abides in you. And that anointing is the Holy Spirit. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it was taught you, abide in him. What he's saying is we not only need to live and place our identity in who Jesus says we now are, but we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit continually. Now, when you put those three things together, you have absolute confidence in your faith. And, and, and here's why it's so important. Um, Melissa prayed this, prayed this earlier. You need to not take what I say as truth. You need to take what this says as truth. And the only way you'll be able to tell whether I'm speaking truth is if you are having God's word live in you and your identity is rooted fully in, in Jesus and in the Father, and if the Holy Spirit, you're giving control to him and he is filling you and directing you, then he'll give you discernment and he'll teach you what is truth and what he is calling you to do moment by moment. When those three come together, we know that our faith is absolutely real. And it's a beautiful thing. So believers affirm their faith by remaining in fellowship with the Lord, affirming historical truth, and confessing Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. And that brings us to the ultimate question. Who is Jesus to you? There's a term that we use in, in theology that's called orthodox. Some of you come from um, more the eastern part of, of, of Europe. Uh, and so when you hear Orthodox, you think of it of the Orthodox Church, perhaps. The word Orthodox means straight. It means that you can measure whether or not something is straight because here is the rule against which you are comparing something. The word heresy, which what is John is warning us about, 
means choose. In other words, heresy means that you can kind of choose what you believe about God. You can take your opinion, you can take the influence of the world, and you can say, I think God is like that. That's heresy, period. It means I'm choosing to paint God in my own image or in the image of the world rather than what his word says, rather than having something be measured against what is absolutely real. When we confess Christ, we need to confess him as he has revealed himself in his word and through history. An orthodox faith. Well, I mentioned before that um, out of the controversies, out of those heresies, the church adopted the Apostles' Creed to help show us that rule of faith of what Christ had done in history. And all through the scripture, I, I, I ran out of time because I, I got distracted, but all through, <laughs> it happens every week, I know. Um, all through the scripture, we see biblical confessions of faith. A- and every one of them identifies who Jesus is as fully the Son of God, come in flesh. Jesus himself says it, says it this way in, John, in Matthew 10, 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So our confession of who Jesus is is not just important, it is eternally important. And all through the scripture, we see biblical confessions. One of the most powerful one is the confession that Peter makes at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And I want to put the picture up of Caesarea Philippi while I read this passage in Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see what he confesses there? that he is God's anointed one, that he is the son of God, that he is the one who has come as the Messiah to rescue us from our sin. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, which means stone. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, bear with me for just, just a moment. We're going to run a little over. But someday, I'll go short. <laughs> I'm banking that on the future. Um, here's the deal. This is a picture of Caesarea Philippi that you see on the screens. And, and this is the location where Peter makes this confession. And it is absolutely significant. Because you see that, that cave that is there was referred to as the gates of hell. And if you've ever been there, I, I was there at, uh, in the evening one time, and it was, it was amazing because all these bats, right as I walked up to it, this whole flock, I don't know what bats are when they're together, but a whole bunch of them just come streaming out of that cave. And it was, it, it was awesome. It was a little scary, but it was awesome. And, and, and so it felt like the gates of hell to me at that moment, seeing these, these creatures coming out and scary looking. But the reason that it's called that is not because it literally is that, but you'll see on the, on the side are all these grottos that are graven into the rock. Those were places where um, even in Jesus' day, they put idols. Most of them were to the, to the Greek god Pan, who was, a, who was God in nature. And so he's, what he's saying is that false belief will never defeat my church. No matter what you throw at it, no matter what kind of heresies or false teaching, my church will stand true because it is built on a confession, not on Peter himself, but on what Peter said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. That is what our faith stands on. 
And Jesus is making this beautiful illustration saying, that's what we need, that confession. Well, there are many other confessions in the scripture um, that we could look at, but we just really don't have the time. So what I want us to do, though, is instead, for just a moment, look at the Apostles' Creed, and then we're gonna say it together and sing it. Because this is the confession that we are to make. By the way, when we celebrate baptism, it's a confession of faith. If you've placed your trust in Jesus, let me encourage you to make that confession public and be baptized. Because that is the most beautiful thing. It's saying to the Lord, I believe, Jesus, you are who you say you are. And I identify with your death, burial, and resurrection. I am yours. And it it not only does something inside of you, it brings great joy and pleasure to the Father, and it builds up the faith of everyone in the church. So if you've got questions about baptism, um, would you send me an email this week or talk to me afterwards or one of the elders? Because that is the most beautiful confession of faith. It puts our faith into action of saying, I'm identifying with who Jesus really is. But here's what it says in the creed. Um, the creed simply means, it's, it's from a Latin word, and it simply means, I believe. That's what creed means. The, the Latin word is credo. And here, I'm using the oldest form of the Apostles' Creed that we have. I believe in God the Father Almighty. A later version add, ma- added onto that, maker of heaven and earth. But this statement is not a belief in an impersonal force or in many gods, but rather a deep trust in a personal, loving God who is all-powerful. That's the first part of our confession. The second part is, and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord. We believe Jesus Christ is the anointed one. He is the promised Messiah. He is eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus lived a sinless human life and offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all people by dying on the cross. He arose from the dead after three days to demonstrate his power over sin and death. He ascended to heaven's glory and will return again someday to earth to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what we're confessing. That's why it spells it out. It not just says that we believe in Christ Jesus, his only son and Lord. We believe that he was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. The virgin birth is absolutely essential because only a sinless savior could rescue you and I. That's why it's so important. We not only say it, but we believe he is born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He is sinless. And then we believe the, what happened in history. Who was crucified, the next line says, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was buried. And it's significant because what they wanna do is they wanna nail down that fact with a point in history and an understanding that Pontius Pilate is the one who ultimately allowed him to be crucified to say, you take him and be crucified. It nails down that event in history. And then the great hope, and the third day rose from the dead. We do not believe just in a God who sacrificed himself for us, but in a God who was victorious over death. And if he can defeat our greatest enemy, then nothing is impossible. Who ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Right now, Jesus Christ is interceding for you and I, sitting at the right hand of the Father. When we say that, when we confess that, we're reminding ourselves that he is our advocate for us as his church. And then we remind ourselves with the next line, he will return to judge the living and the dead. Everything in this life is accountable to a holy perfect God and we believe in the Holy Spirit Jesus promised to send the comforter to live within us as a deposit of eternal life to teach us to guide us to direct us to convict us the next phrase says we believe in the Holy Church Um, later version says Holy Catholic Church it doesn't mean Roman Catholic the word Catholic just means universal the church as a whole 
from every denomination, everyone that confesses Jesus Christ is the Lord, no matter what name you have over the, top, the front door or on your letterhead or on your website, that doesn't matter. It matters whether or not we confess Jesus is the Son of God, come in the flesh. If we do that, we are his church. The remission of sins, and the word remission means a cancellation of our debt and full forgiveness. When we confess Jesus, we're confessing what he did for us, that we are fully forgiven. We believe in the resurrection of the flesh, of the body, life everlasting. That's what we have in Christ. Romans 10, I'm gonna end with this before we say this together. Romans 10 verses eight through 10 says this, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's his promise. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So would you join with me and let's stand together today and let's confess Jesus for who he truly is by saying the creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was buried, and the third day rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. He will return to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, the life everlasting. Lord, this is our confession. This is what we believe and proclaim is true. Lord, I pray now for each person here who believes that in their heart and confessed it with their mouth, Lord, that you would take that truth of who you truly are, Jesus, and give them great assurance this day. Strengthen their faith. Strengthen their boldness, their confidence, Lord, so that we can go from this place and live as if we truly are united in you, Jesus. You've already proven your victory. Your resurrection proves that you have the power to do that which is absolutely impossible. You have proven your love for us and that you've adopted us as your sons and daughters and you've brought us into the union of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Lord, you have made us your own. Help us to stand true. Help your word to live within us and for us to live in you, in your uh, union and in your love. And Lord, fill us now as your church with the Holy Spirit that we may show your grace to those around us. Lord, we believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen.